Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... Governor Brian Kemp has his proposed budget for the state and the agencies. Well, they have their needs as well. So we he, we will hear what lawmakers were told this week. It's a big old recap of what happened under the gold dome. Also, six five million dollars. It's a lot of money. It's the largest donation in the history of the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. And later from the special grand jury report regarding Georgia's 2020 presidential election to finding out who, how, when, why and where the Roe versus Wade draft was leaked last year. Well, we'll get to all of this as we speak with former U.S. Attorney Michael Moore, who will provide some legal insight. Those conversations coming up, but we'll begin with this. Activists and social justice groups say they will demonstrate this weekend in Atlanta. Now, that's after authorities say a shootout on Wednesday killed a protester and injured a state trooper on the site for the planned fire and police training facility for those workers here in Atlanta. As Shemaine Cruz reports, seven people are now facing domestic terrorism charges. Advocates with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund say they're also planning to file a wrongful death lawsuit as questions remain about what led up to the shooting. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation has identified the person who was shot and killed as 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Paez Terran. Authorities say seven people, all from out of state, were arrested and are now facing domestic terrorism and illegal trespass charges. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. Now, as for those charged with domestic terrorism and trespassing, according to the GBI, in addition to the 25 illegal campsites that were cleared, they also confiscated, quote, mortar-style fireworks, multiple-edge weapons, pellet rifles, gas masks, and a blowtorch, close quote. Protesters and the supporters were calling for the release of body camera footage of the shooting, but the GBI tells WABE there is no such body camera footage of the shooting. Police and protesters have clashed for more than a year at this proposed training site, which is actually located in DeKalb County. Now, those arrested were all from out of state, and they range in age from 20 to 35. There was no release information about the weapon that shot the officer. In other news, just back from his European trip, Governor Brian Kemp's office is again touting his efforts to improve the state's economy, saying they've created nearly 118,000 jobs and billions in investments. As Alex Helmick reports, it's a narrative the governor has used since retaking office. Early into the pandemic in 2020, Georgia became one of the first states to relax lockdown rules. As Kemp said to help hurting businesses, it became a point he used in his re-election. And the state in the last couple of years has doled out billions in tax breaks to lure companies here, especially in the electric vehicle sector. Earlier this week, Kemp took his message to the world's richest and most powerful at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where he called Georgia a model on how to conduct business in the current economy. Alex Helmick, WAB News. Atlanta Public School Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring says her priority is to ensure all students who are in pre-K will graduate high school ready for college or the workforce. Martha Dalton has more from Thursday's State of the District address. Herring said there's meaning behind the event's theme, Mission Possible APS 2036. That's the year current pre-kindergarten students will be seniors in high school, and Herring's mission is to ensure that they all graduate ready for college or careers. Our students have to know before they leave us, and quite honestly, before they hit high school, they have to have a sense of career relevance and interest and talents so that they feel engaged, so that we keep them at a space where they're pursuing a talent and a dream or perhaps an unidentified one. 
To do that, Herring said, the district needs help from philanthropic partners and community volunteers who are willing to serve as mentors. The district's high school graduation rate has ticked up the past few years in spite of the pandemic. It reached a high of 84 percent last year. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Georgians can now weigh in on a proposal to mine for titanium and other minerals near the Okefenokee Swamp, as we hear from Emily Jones. The controversial proposal to mine near the swamp has drawn opposition for years from environmentalists and scientists. Rhett Jackson is a hydrologist at the University of Georgia. He's concerned about mining on a key geological feature known as Trail Ridge. He says the mine could increase the frequency and severity of droughts in the swamp. If they're taking that water out of Trail Ridge, it's not going to the swamp. So that water is lost at the times when the swamp really needs it. Jackson says more droughts could hurt the ecosystem, increase wildfires, and make it harder for boaters to visit the popular swamp. The president of the mining company, which is called Twin Pines, says the claims that his project would harm the swamp are absurd. Now the State Environmental Protection Division has published a draft of the land use plan for the mine, and regulators are accepting public comment for 60 days. State Representative Darlene Taylor tried to ban mining on Trail Ridge last year, though her bill failed to pass. She says she expects many people to weigh in. This is a very unique opportunity for the state of Georgia and our people to save that property. It doesn't need to be mined. Taylor says she plans to introduce another bill to block future mining on Trail Ridge. Emily Jones, WABE News. And coming up next, what happened under the Gold Dome this week? And you can count how many times I say Gold Dome. We'll check in with our WABE politics reporters. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Sure, it's a cliche, but it's never a dull moment under the gold dome. Raul Bali will appreciate that. State lawmakers are now finished with their first full week since the session got underway. Let's get the word on the legislative curb. Daniel Rizal will appreciate that with our WAB political reporters, Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass. Welcome. I think I've had maybe What's a couple up, dull moments, but <laughs> I hear you. You've had some dull moments. Some of those meetings, you know. <laughs> Now, now, now. All right. I, I, I do my best not to let anything be dull. Up yes, here. we've noticed, Raul. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you. Sam, let's start with you because there's some news on what could be next for this special grand jury's investigation. What are you hearing? So what happens next? Tuesday, there's going to be this big hearing in Fulton County Court. Uh, Judge Robert McBurney is going to weigh basically whether this report of the special grand jury, which has now been dissolved, whether it should be released and also when, uh, you know, and who's going to appear. It's probably going to be prosecutors and mostly lawyers for the media who are going to be arguing that this report should be released quickly and as fully as possible. Today, uh, we just popped off a conference call with uh, Norm Eisen, a legal scholar who's really closely studied this Fulton County investigation. Mm -hmm. And his takeaway is that it is not a question of if this report is going to be released, but when. And the key thing that we're likely to hear from prosecutors is it's in their interest to have this report not released until they're coming out with indictments, if they do, to tie those things together. So they might be pushing to, hey, 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 can you hold off on this until we're ready to bring charges for for a grand jury? Is there a collective, and either uh, one of you can answer this, of media folks, we folks that are pushing to make this public, or at least that the media have access to it, the press club, any other, you know, media related, credible media related associations here? 
I mean, I think we one group we expect to be at the front of this is the AJC, uh, who has lawyers who will likely be pushing uh, for this to be released. Uh, WAB is not involved in that, to my knowledge. All right. Now over to you, Raul. You were just outside of the Capitol covering a rally held by Georgia Right to Life. That's right. It's one of those events that is held every year. So this Sunday marks the 40th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. And on or around the anniversary, both sides generally hold events here at the state capitol. As you mentioned, Georgia Right to Life and their supporters are across the street at the state capitol over in Liberty Plaza. They're going to march here in just probably a few minutes if they haven't already started uh, marching around the capitol. My big takeaway Mm -hmm. um, is that while they're happy that Roe was overturned and that Georgia's six-week abortion ban is on the books. They do want further restrictions. Specifically, right now, Georgia's current law bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. They want a complete ban. And the other thing that I heard across the street was possibly putting something in the Georgia Constitution. I should Mm -hmm. mention that abortion rights supporters will also have events including one here at the state capitol Sunday at one o'clock. Arrow, just for clarity, unless I didn't hear you correctly, you said 40th, but I think it's the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, correct? Uh, 19th. You had to ask me about, no, you're right. Wait, put the math skills Um, to work there, Raul. Yeah, you know what? Georgia State's proud of Raul and, and his uh, economics degree. Why are you um, going to yes, put it on Georgia State? <laughs> I'm putting it on Georgia State, yes. No, yeah, you're correct. It would be the 50th anniversary. I'm sure it's making Georgia State professors feel <laughs> just proud. Um, I just don't want to realize how close I am to my 50th birthday. That's actually what's going on. I had nothing to do with that. Uh, I, I want to go back, though, to let's get back to the, to the lawmakers as well. Um Let's turn to House Speaker John Burns, who held a press conference yesterday, sort of outlining some legislative priorities, including abortion. I want our listeners to take a listen to this. I think the posture that the House should be in is certainly the posture that John Burns is in. We're going to wait and see exactly what becomes with the the legislation we passed. We're going to make sure that legislation with House Bill 481, the language in it is effective and is is supported, and, and certainly we believe it is that is, it was good legislation, it's good policy, but we're certainly waiting to make sure the process works. We're going to hear from the state Supreme Court, and then we'll move forward on something then if we need to. If not, we certainly have something in place. Now, which one of you would like to uh, break that down and D. John Burns leads that for us? So let me, uh, the question that was asked was, do you see anything moving in terms of legislation mm-hmm. on abortion this session? And specifically, the legislation that died last session uh, dealing with uh, chemical abortion, those using pills. So mm-hmm. as, as you heard the, the speaker say, he's going to take a wait and see approach. Um, the Georgia six week abortion man is going to be heard a challenge to it. it's going to be heard in the Georgia Supreme Court on March the 28th. Mm-hmm. That's the day before the last day of the session. Yeah. So I, I think if you're waiting to hear that's going to be. You know, let's see what the Supreme Court does. That kind of tells you they're not going to see much movement here. There's not an appetite for that movement um, of, of to do something here at the state capitol. Hmm. Though he was asked separately about abortion pills and uh, that bill that died last session, which would require an in-person office visit and stop mailing of abortion pills. Mm-hmm. He did say he thought that was a good bill and uh, he would wait to see if it pops up. So that's that is something that could come up separate from, you know, a broader round of abortion legislation, as as Burns is saying, about waiting till after the Supreme Court rules. And another issue that has come up, which is related to quality of life for Georgians, is about housing. What did he say in terms of his priorities toward any legislative that deals with that? So, you know, and this is probably something we heard a lot yesterday is I'm going to wait to see what kind of legislation comes up, what comes our way. Um, but on housing, the, the interesting thing that I took away in that conversation, that was actually the question that I asked the speaker during the press conference, mm-hmm. is he doesn't want to get involved in the decisions on zoning and code enforcement made by local governments. That, that, that's what he said. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what I'm watching for when it comes to corporations buying homes or building neighborhoods or, you know, what happens with housing affordability, because 
there is an absolute realization in the Capitol that if if you know you 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 know the idea of you know and you heard that in Alex uh, Helmut's story uh, in your newscast in your news brief is Georgia's economic development you know could be challenged by having enough workers whether mm-hmm. they're you know produced here in Georgia or brought in here into Georgia and where to house them. Those are two challenges, and so you've got lawmakers and the governor looking at how do you how do you deal with this? Hmm. Ro, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Sam. What about you? Any priorities or, or measures that you are also hoping to see or awaiting to hear, see and hear what the speaker has to say? Well, I think one thing that Raul and I both noticed from sitting in this press conference this week is that answer that you mentioned. We'll wait and see. That's interesting. There's discussions. We heard that for almost every policy issue that was brought up, not a whole lot of specific pronouncements or drawing a line in the sand about where he felt about issues. So at least it seems to me in this first term of his speakership, I'm expecting that a lot will be directed from you know the governor's office in terms of the budget priorities and, and things of that nature. Um, hmm. You know, Burns was kind of, uh, you know, whether it's that he's holding his cards close to his chest or he's letting, you know, the governor's office determine the priorities in these uh, next few months. Uh, that was certainly the takeaway that I had this session. Um, well, as lawmakers are starting to hold these budget hearings this week and with agency heads, you know, look from transportation, to education and many more making their case. Any ones that stuck out to you all this week in terms of what they're asking for? And, and I know with DFACS, there's a that's a whole nother hour. Um, but there's so many of these departments that are really making a plea to lawmakers saying this is what we need. And it's not always just money, but it's a big part of it. I mean, it's interesting because in some ways, these budget talks are kind of the most unvarnished view that we get to look into government agencies and what they need and what their challenges are in this moment. It kind of allows you to peel back the the curtain of these broad, like, we're doing so great. We have all this surplus, you know rah-rah about the days ahead. And you see these little glimmers that kind of help illuminate some of the challenges that different parts of our government are facing. And two that stuck out to me, one uh, in the presentation of the director of public health, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, Mm -hmm. uh, she mentioned that over the pandemic, maternal mortality actually got worse in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And as we've know very well it is already really really bad in georgia among Mm -hmm. the worst in the nation uh so that was one thing that popped out to me and the other is in the presentation from sunny purdue chancellor of the university of georgia system that enrollment overall across the system is declining and it's declined over the last couple of years and he called it a demographic cliff that the system is facing that might end up leading to budget cuts so two moments that kind of help us understand uh uh, the underside to some of this uh happy uh economic news that we're 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 hearing in other places yeah the the university system now was alarming raul what about you what in terms of these agencies and their budget requests what stood out to you I'm always interested in the questions that lawmakers ask. And and, and it wasn't a budget head, but it was the governor's state economist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when he wrapped up, there were so, and we already just talked about it, so many questions about housing and, mm-hmm. and what to do about housing. I just, I don't remember this many questions up here, uh, you know, and I think I mentioned to you on a previous show, you know, you keep hearing about housing and what to do about it. It's like other issues. People know that they that something needs to be done, but then the the next question, you know, what to do about it. And then the other thing, um, um, when Richard Woods, the state school superintendent, um, was up on the dais, he mm-hmm. was asked about QBE, which is the basic funding mm-hmm. formula for state money for schools, and he was asked, "Hey, is it time to overhaul it?" Well, again, you hear this all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's time to overhaul it. The one thing he did say is. He would hope for a piecemeal approach, a little at a time to see the effects of those changes. Look, the discussion is, you know, is it time to change the state formula that is 40 years old Mm -hmm. uh, on on education and how it's funded? You hear the answers generally, yes. What to replace it with? You don't hear that answer as often. Mm. And Raul, I have to ask you this. uh, (laughs) Buckhead cityhood, I mean, is it still on the minds of some lawmakers? What are you hearing? It's it's not a big discussion up here, at least not yet. Um, I think it's just one of those things where once the bill drops, maybe the conversations get going. 
it mainly is people asking me, hey, have you heard anything yet? I, I just haven't yet. You know, it's if the bill gets dropped, then we'll see where it starts going. All right. And before we go, listen, we're still very early in this session, but you all, I hear there are a lot of bills that are in the works. Uh, you want to take a stab at how many? So, um, so far, we only have 71 bills and resolutions filed. Mm -hmm. If you go down, so I'm sitting in the House chamber, about 100 feet from me is the Office of Legislative Counsel. They're the ones who draft all the bills. You know how many bills they've already drafted? 979. That means there's 900 bills waiting out here to be to be filed. So um, <laughs> imagine uh, all the bills about animals and <laughs> food trucks and all these things that we'll have to tease through over the next and, two months. And raw milk. Is, there a, is the raw milk making a comeback here, Raul? Because it's a big deal. Uh, I mean, we have fun with it, but it's a big deal. And I, I get it on both sides. It's a big deal. Well, I thought raw, raw milk did get done. Um, but I have heard at least one person say, is there a raccoon bill in the works? So uh, I will keep you updated on any raccoon bills. What? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody inferred it in one of the in one of the budget meetings. Uh, is will there be? I'm like, okay, maybe. I don't know. Leave our little raccoons alone. I mean, <laughs> <sighs> okay. All right. I tell you. Hmm. I'm just here to cause trouble, Rose. All right. Yeah, you are, and you do a very good job of that. <laughs> Raul Bali, Sam Greenglass, WAB's political reporters. As always, I appreciate you taking the time. Send all your raccoon-related hate email to Raul, not me. CC me. Just CC me. <laughs> CC. CC. <laughs> Thanks, Rose. Uh, Thanks, Rose. Take care, fellas. You're tuned to Closer Look from WABE. I'm Rose Scott. The Center for Constitutional Rights referred to Ashley Diamond's 2015 landmark lawsuit as, quote, challenging the cruel and unusual treatment of incarcerated trans people by the Georgia Department of Corrections, close quote. And Ashley Diamond actually sued twice, first for denying her access to hormone therapy, as well as once for prison officials refusing to protect her from repeated sexual assault and other forms of neglect. Now, the first case was resolved in 2016, and it led to dozens of incarcerated trans people in Georgia with the ability to receive hormones. And she filed a second lawsuit in November of 2020. And Ashley Diamond was released from prison in August of last year. Yesterday, as the other case was set to begin, Diamond announced through the Southern Poverty Law Center she was dropping the lawsuit to focus on healing. But perhaps leading up to all of this, might Diamond's lawsuits bring about nationwide change with correctional facilities? We're going to talk about this case and some other big legal-related news from this week. Join me now, Attorney Michael J. Moore, former U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, the same court where Diamond's second trial will have taken place, and a note, he is not involved in any of the cases we're about to discuss. Attorney Moore, thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Thanks, Rose. Lots to get to. Of course, you're not representing Ashley Diamond, but as a former U.S. attorney, what are your thoughts in, in terms of, and, and Ms. Diamond has obviously the right to do this, but the change of heart here, in a sense, uh, opting not to go through with the second, the second lawsuit here? Yeah. Well, again, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I, I am not representing uh, Ms. Diamond and, or have anything to do with the case. I do know that some of the individuals in the case and it's a good court to be in i think mm -hmm. the judge was a is a very well respected judge that would have would have presided over the trial and that would have been a good case I, I totally understand though her position in deciding to drop the lawsuit i mean what you see a lot of times in cases where you have a, a sexual assault victim mm -hmm. is that the pursuit of justice uh, oftentimes ends up re-traumatizing that victim mm -hmm. and you know she went through a litigation process back before when she uh, secured uh, even a statement by the Department of Justice about uh, the rights of uh, incarcerated individuals. And uh, she, so she's kind of fought the fight. Now she mm -hmm. has decided she needs to, to move forward, take care of herself. In a case where an individual was trying to prove that there was uh, intentional neglect in terms of their safety in a correctional facility, and in this case, especially for uh, a, a, a transgender person, what would... Diamond, what would have to have been proven here in, in 
now we know through the Department of Justice, through their investigation of just sexual assault as it relates in these correction facilities for women. So what would have been able to try to prove here? You never want a case to go forward just on a uh, sort of a he said, she said type uh, arrangement. You need to have some evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that is, you know, unfortunately, I think that uh, you, you have jurors look at individuals who may be different and sometimes judges. I mean, they try not to, but I mean, they look at individuals and they may assign different levels of credibility with them based on their status or station in life. And so you want to have some physical proof that could be in the form of medical records. It could be in the form of photograph injuries. Uh, It could be in the form of contemporaneous notes or reports that were made at the time uh, that that the uh, assault took place. Uh, sometimes with the medical staff, sometimes uh, reporting to a uh, uh, prison guard. Mm-hmm. But then you also may look to policies that the Department of Corrections may have in place that are not particularly favorable to protecting individuals uh, of Ms. Diamond's status. And, and, and you know, do they have uh, provisions about uh, showers and, and uh, are they are people left alone with guards in, in mm-hmm. unmonitored areas? Are they, you know, these things that um, I think the first lawsuit sort of aimed to, to provide. Uh, as far as some additional security. And Attorney Moore, are correctional facilities required to investigate and and at least document all all allegations of sexual or physical assault in correctional facilities, whether it's from another uh, offender that's in there with an individual or guards or staff or whomever? They, they are required to take care of their inmates, mm-hmm. and that would include those types of investigations. And let me, if you think about it um, in, in this way, I mean, a, a, an inmate is a custodian of that or, or, or a custodial occupant of that custodian, meaning the facility. Mm-hmm. And so just like you have, um, you can't have guards having sex with inmates because the, the inmate, they, it's just presumed that they don't have the ability to, to consent. I mean, they're, they're, they're prisoners. They, mm-hmm. they can't do it. And so there, there is a duty of the facility and of the department to protect those people who have been uh, confined in, 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 the, in, the, in the institution. And so I, I um, unfortunately, I think, again, um, while you have many good people working for the Department of Corrections, you have some people who, who are not and who choose uh, from time to time to victimize uh, inmates or to take advantage of their position as corrections officers or administrators over people who are under their care and who really have very little voice oftentimes uh, in, in making these kinds of reports. And they have to, I'm afraid, sometimes shout louder than, than other folks who are victimized. And how challenging is it to get cooperation from staff, you know, correctional facility staff and, and, and guards of that nature because of just the environment? It can be difficult. I mean, we were involved even during my time as United States attorney with uh, cases where uh, correctional uh, officers uh, had abused some some inmates. It wasn't uh, the same type of case as Ms. Diamond's case. but mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it's difficult because there is oftentimes a code of silence that uh, causes people not to talk. Mm-hmm. And um, and so but 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 just like. Many criminal organizations, and I'm not calling the Department of Criminal Organization, but just like that you see in some of those cases, mm-hmm. once you crack it, once you can get in there and get somebody talking, you then find other people who realize that suddenly they may be caught who are also willing to sort of spill the beans and, and tell the truth and tell the story. But you, but it's, it's an inordinate amount of work to get in there and sometimes to break down uh, that uh, chamber of silence. Well, since Diamond's 2015 lawsuit did result in some reforms for transgender offenders in prisons nationwide, do you think perhaps then this might even going forward invoke more change? I hope so. I hope so. I think we we have a lot to learn and a lot to do about making our prisons. I mean, we, we do need punishment in a society, but at the same time, we need places where they're safe and where we have rehabilitation and we offer uh, employment uh, training and job training programs, educational programs. And so I think sometimes that's our mindset about what a prison system should mm-hmm. be. Um, this is not the days of having people in the chain gang. You know, mm-hmm. we, those we hopefully become more enlightened in that. Again, you have many, many good people. And I, and I know some who many good people who work in the prison system and who care about uh, making sure that people get a fresh start after they've paid the, their penalty. Uh, it, it, and it, we're talking 
unfortunately about as we often do mm-hmm. th- th- those people those few people who who sort of mire the reputation of of other good good public servants i want to shift for a moment and get your thoughts on some other legal <laughs> news this week listen after an eight-month probe scotus says and that is the supreme court of the united states folks they have no clue who or how that Roe versus Wade draft was leaked. They don't know who did it. They don't know how it was done. There you surprise. have it. Surprise, <laughs> surprise, surprise. I, I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing about the report is that uh, I don't believe that the investigators interviewed the justices, which I, I think that. Which uh-huh. I, I, I think they interviewed <laughs> law clerks and, cl- and and employees in the facility and, I mean, in the courthouse and, uh, staff and the person that, that delivers the donuts every morning they interview well, them right person. i yeah. mean okay. you know you make people give over their cell phones and their call records and text logs all this kind of stuff but i don't know that they ever interviewed the justices and and that to me was the biggest place that it was likely to have leaked uh for some other reason and so um i i, I you know I, unfortunately i think that that the uh there's a lot of tarnish that's been yeah. put on the supreme court uh recently uh, and and this just adds to it, and and it's not what you want in the court. You want the people who are underneath the court to to uh, have confidence in the decisions handed down. Well, and, and, and attorney Moore, I think that's what for a lot of, of folks, you know, like us, the public is like, okay, this is the highest, this is our nation's highest court, mm-hmm. and so if we have these quote leaks, or we have a system where leaks can occur, and we don't know how it happened, to something very crucial obviously when you talk about roe v wade going forward how can the american public have confidence then in the system in the process which some don't even have confidence to begin with anyway right well and and that's the fear and you know i think that there was a time when you you saw justices who protected the institution and the integrity of the body as opposed to seeing it as just a political arm but at the same time uh, you look at the confirmation process that goes on now and the circus that surrounds that that Mm -hmm. process as opposed to looking at a at a judge for his or her abilities and his you know his or her academic prowess or or experience, life experience or whatever it may be, uh, it's it's become a circus and it's, and it's unfortunately taken on the mantle of, of a, another political arm of the government and that's that's a concern because the people who don't agree with the way that the court uh, is is uh, staffed uh, or or the, the membership of the court they they're going to distrust. What you want to do is you want to be able to say, I can disagree with the court, but I can at least have confidence that that justices of, of a fair mind uh, reviewed the facts. I may not understand how the case came out. I may not agree with it, but I can at least have confidence that fair and impartial people did it. And and that's that is something that, um, you know, I, I hope the court can can uh, regain. I just don't see that now. And, I mean, we could blame, uh, I think, a lot of on the prior administration. Uh, about loss of of belief in in institutions, and uh, there was just constant attacks during those years about uh, on institutions of government, uh, as as well as what I see, you know, political maneuverings. Are the justices are they protected from having to give up any of their own like laptops, cell phones? I mean, you, we talked about all the other folks, but. Are there some protections in place for them that perhaps the others don't don't didn't have? I think probably by by fiat, you know, they they've decided they're not going to do it. You know, think about this when you, uh, you a judge, a justice can decide whether or not he or she wants to recuse themselves from a case. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the that's the end of the decision. What he or she decides. So, you know, that's there's not a lot. to it, It's it's a little bit like, you know, asking is the king governed by his own rules mm-hmm. uh, when, you, when you get to that situation. So. I, I'm sure there was a, a, a decision that was made and circulated around the court and, and to the investigating group there at the court that, the, that there would be no interview of the of the justices themselves. And, and, I, and I, I'm not I'm, I'm speaking from having read excerpts right. and parts of the report. You're I, not you're I, not you're not. And by the way, folks, it's via Zoom. He's not like winking at me, telling me this justice is the guilty person. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I, 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 from what from what I've from the public reporting thus far that we've been able to see. I don't see that the court, that the justices were, were interviewed as part of the process. I want to talk about this again because we haven't talked about it enough. This Fulton County special grand jury. Now we hear, you know what? Okay, we know that there is a report. Now will it be released? Should it be released? Who gets to see it? Right. Well, <laughs> next like, week it's like whack a mole here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next week's going to be an interesting week with Judge McBurney and what, yeah. what he decides to do. Um, 
you know, I've got really mixed feelings about it. I mean, on the one hand, I think that that's, it would be good for the people to see that the, the time and treasure of the government and of the district attorney's office and the court system has been put to good use so they could know exactly what this special grand jury found. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that there's great value in keeping grand jury investigations secret. And that is because for, for people who may be named in an investigation and ultimately are not charged, uh, and that happened not to take the Trump case out of it, but in, in any situation, you don't want to ruin somebody's reputation if, in fact, they're not charged with a crime. And so when you release a full report, the grand jury may, in fact, say, well, this special grand jury may have said, well, we think that, you know, the DA should charge A, B and C. Mm-hmm. And the district attorney says, well, I'm only going to charge B. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly A and C have their name out in the public as people who a group of citizens felt like should be charged with a crime. They may not. You know, but that's within the DA's discretion and that's within within her consideration mm-hmm. of the law and the facts and the application of specific facts to specific laws. And um, so that's that there's there's a reason to keep it secret. But this I fear that a lot of the stuff that's gone on with the Trump administration, even these investigations, has sort of sort of turned normalcy on its head. Mm-hmm. We we're now making decisions about how to react to situations that are not normal. And we can't change our norms and we can't change our safeguards simply because we're dealing with with a situation that that is so abnormal to what we've seen in this country. Well, and it was it was abnormal for a district attorney office to file charges against a former sitting president or sitting president of the United States. If this indeed does lead to this report being published, being whatever that does set a precedent moving forward. And right. my goodness. No question. no question about that. And it will be, it will be something that is completely off the, the norm. And, and it's a concern again, you know, do we want to have a country where presidents and former presidents are indicted by local elected officials? Some could say that's a good thing. You know, I, I, I may take a different view of that. You know, I worry about, for instance, um, having a president. And, and in this case, you've got a democratic president who may, say something in, in, a, in a jurisdiction and a Republican DA decides they're going to charge, it causes us to question that. And that's 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 one of the benefits of having the Department of Justice, which is seen generally as more apolitical because you have career employees and not elected officials who campaign on certain things. You know, Bonnie Willis has her, has her hands full either way. And, uh, and, and she's a good lawyer and an experienced prosecutor. Um, the, you know, what's interesting is that the, we are just at the beginning of this case if she decides to indict because mm-hmm. at that point you, then we're going to start seeing the motion practice we're going to start seeing appellate decision we're going to start seeing everything taken and challenged to the appellate courts and up through the supreme court and so we really have had two years of uh work and a year of the special grand jury but two years since the the, the election and and we're really just at the beginning of this yeah. race and so mm-hmm. uh, we'll see where we go and finally, of course, you know, this week's uh, the state trooper and the protester shooting death that took place here uh, in Atlanta. Now there's no body camera footage, according to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Once again, this is starting the debate over having one, a non-law enforcement agency investigate all of these, quote, questionable police-involved shootings, and especially when there's death or serious injury. What do you see going forward with this? Because as I read earlier, this is a mess. Yeah, and and again, I think some of this goes to our unfortunate distrust of of agencies and and institutions or governmental agencies. I think it's good to have trained people who are experienced in things like ballistics training and otherwise and and scene reconstruction and this type of thing to, to be involved in cases. At the same time, you want the public to have confidence in whatever decision is reached. Mm-hmm. And so does that mean that somehow we also have a citizen review panel that works in conjunction? Does it mean that we put something in place? I don't want us to get to a point where we uh, look at a, a, an investigative agency like the GBI and say, well, they can't review this because they may say something, you know, they may be impartial. We ought to be able to look at it. And and, and sometimes having a good prosecutor, um, mm-hmm. I always think that it's important for a DA or a prosecutor to come out, U.S. attorney, sometimes to say, this is what I saw. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at it, too. I made a decision, and here here we are. But, folks, we even with the press conference that the GBI had, you know, the other day, right after, not even having all the information, you know, one could argue they are already leaning toward law enforcement being in, in the right. And, and again, therein lies the issue with maybe an outside agency ought to be the one to 
investigate this. So we'll. And, and I, yeah, ahead. I think that's something to that's something that to, to to look at again. I don't I don't want to get in a situation where we say that outside agencies can't be impartial in sure. review, but there's got to be a way to have sort of a blended review or or, or even just. Sometimes it's honestly just the transparency. Mm-hmm. People, you know, I've found that the, the jurors and courts and the public can be very forgiving and very understanding if they just are told the truth and you level with them and say, this is what I saw. There's, you know, there's not all this secrecy and cloud and stuff, but we're not going to release that. not going to talk about this. Sometimes, the, you know, you just need to, you just need to lay it out there and let people understand. And it, and it cuts both ways. Yeah. Man, honestly. Attorney Michael J. Moore, former U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. As always, we appreciate you bringing some legal insight into this. Thank you so much. Always great to be with you, Rose. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Take care. You too. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. $65 million. That is the largest gift to the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. That's a lot of money. It is the largest in the foundation's 60-year history, and half of it will also be used to establish the Brown Hutner's Scholarship Scholarship Foundation. If you've seen or if you've heard the movie Devotion, you might recall it's a story of the Navy's most celebrated wingman, Jesse Brown, the first black aviator in naval history, and Tom Hutner, his fellow fighter pilot and friend. Join us now with details about this historic scholarship fund is the distinguished astronaut, I'm just giddy, former NASA Administrator and retired Marine Major General Charles F. Bowden Jr. Welcome. It's a pleasure. I need that jacket. It's, hey, it's good <laughs> to be with you, Rose, and uh, please call me Charlie. I'm, um, you know, I love, are you in Atlanta? I am in Atlanta. My wife and daughter are both uh, honored graduates of Spelman. My daughter is actually from Spelman in Georgia Tech. And, all right. Uh, did all her stuff there before she came to Washington, D.C. to be a plastic surgeon. All right. We love we love our Spelman folks and Clark and Morehouse because I'll get an email. Um, well, my mom's a graduate <laughs> of Clark Atlanta U back when it was Atlanta U. She got her master's in library science from there. That is what's up. Listen, when you first heard about this $65 million gift, and we should note it's coming from the FedEx founder, Fred Smith, when you heard about this, what went through your mind? I was blown away. I, you know, I knew of things that that uh, Mr. Smith had done before, and um, and they usually had something to do with military members. But that's a lot. As you said, it's a lot of money. It mm-hmm. will help us. In fact, it's already helped us in the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation because we are able to serve more than a, a hundred additional scholarships than we were able mm-hmm. to do before the sixty-five million dollar gift. And and as you already pointed out, uh, Fred's stipulation was that we would we would share it mm-hmm. equally among the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, which serves all kids of Marines and Navy personnel who serve with Marines. That's corpsmen and religious personnel. Mm. But that the second half would go to the Brown-Hudner Scholarship Foundation. And that's focused on sons and daughters of Navy personnel who are interested in science, technology, engineering, math, or the health sciences. I'm so glad you brought that up. Different. Yeah, because I yes. think so folks didn't think that, oh, that you have to join one of the, the branches of the military. You don't have to join anything. All right. you have to do is be the son, the, the child, the child. Of, a, uh, of a military member, a Navy or Marine Corps. Let me ask you this, because, you know, you, you're a, you had over 100 combat missions during the Vietnam War. Which and, means I'm old. <laughs> no, see, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about, obviously, the the, the so many careers within the military and, and where folks, I think, think you have to somehow be in some type of combat battle or whatever. But this really will help so many youth who can go in so many different directions within this branch of the military. Exactly. And, and Rose, another point that um, is really important we don't pay attention to race, um, you know, or religion or creed. And you being there in Atlanta and being a person of color, you're very aware of the fact that our kids frequently get left out of these kinds of scholarships. Uh, if you look at the pictures of the kids that are receiving these scholarships, it's like America. And mm-hmm. that, that's what I love about it. Um, that's not an intent. Uh, it is actually the in, the big intent is to serve the as we promised all of our military members, we 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 have their back and we'll serve them, and we're serving them by educating their children. But but it does give our kids an opportunity to get 
an education where they might not otherwise do so. Well, in this space where everyone's concerned about DEI and access and creating a, a pipeline of, of candidates that are diverse and whatever said field, when we talk about recruiting and training the, the next pipeline of aviators and astronauts dear to you, that's that's important. It's critically important. You know, we today we don't have um, uh, none of us are satisfied with the representation among the aviators in any of the services. But since I'm a Marine, I'm particularly disturbed uh, by the fact that I'm looking for kids who can follow me mm-hmm. and, uh, and and kids who, who who happen to look like me. And we just we aren't doing a very good job of that. And so the Brown Hudner Scholarship Foundation will hopefully hopefully help us to bring some of those kids along because they've got a major in, they've got to be interested in STEM courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, they can major in anything they want. Uh, we just want them to go to school, study hard and do well and come out and make a difference in the world. So it, a slight difference between the two scholarships. But when you talk to young folks, and I know they have a lot of questions, you know, what are those questions? I, I imagine one might be, you know, I can do this. Do I have to be excellent at math or, you know, maybe my skills in this area, are, you know, are, are a little lacking? I mean, yeah. what, what questions do you hear? You get that's sometimes that's the question. What do I have to study or whatever? And the thing that I tell them is what's most important is that they follow their passion. Uh, everybody's not intended to be a scientist nor an engineer. Um, when, you know, growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I had no desire to go in the military. Uh, my dad had served in the army in World War II, and so I knew about it, but mm. I just wanted to go to school, get an engineering degree, become an electrical engineer, get out and, and go make money. And then at the age of 12, I fell in love with the Naval Academy through a television program called Men of Annapolis and decided that's where I wanted to go to school. Uh, and that I would go there, spend my five years of obligated service in the Navy, get out and go back to grad school and get my master's degree in electrical engineering, and the rest would be history. Uh, I fell in love with the Marine Corps through my first company officer at the Naval Academy, who was like my dad, tough but eminently fair. And I decided I was going to the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, found out that he didn't like crawling around in the mud. My wife kept <laughs> insisting that we go to Pensacola, Florida, where it was nice and sunny. And I said, but there are airplanes there and I don't want to fly. She said, oh, come on, it'll be OK. And I <laughs> I did exactly what she said and fell in love with aviation and and uh, spent 34 years in the Marine Corps flying airplanes. So, wow. you know, it's the big thing that I tell kids is follow your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, we need you know, you're a you're a journalist. We need journalists. We need uh, people who can tell stories, particularly when we talk about the space program. So kids who come through the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation or Mm -hmm. Brown Hudner, we're hoping that they're going to want to do some of the things that their parents did. We're hoping that some of them will want to go serve in the military, but then they'll use their voices and their experience to tell other kids you know, this really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I traveled the world. I had a great time. I now feel like I'm contributing to society. And and that that's really what we want. And I have a couple of emails. Listeners are like, Rose, stop yapping and ask him again. How do we sign up for this? <laughs> they t- t- told me to stop yapping. Emails. I'm sorry, Rose. No, they're talking about me. They're telling me to stop yapping. Okay. Because I use that word a lot. Okay, I'm going to stop yapping yeah. and ask you again. So let's talk about there are two different pathways here in terms of these scholarships, right? That's absolutely right. right. And uh, but both of them begin in the same place. And mm-hmm. that's go to the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation website. And that's MCSF.org. And uh, either go and ask about Brown Hudner or just ask about Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation scholarship. It'll tell all the kids who are eligible that, you know, these are the re- prerequisites. This is what you need to submit and and then go for it wow. um, again. Brown Hudner is open to any child of a Navy, uh, you know, a sailor. Mm-hmm. Um, Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation is primarily focused on Marines and sailors or, or Navy personnel who have served with Marines. And that's mm-hmm. generally chaplains, assistants or corpsmen. Sure. And I just want to say this as a storyteller, and, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of this, that we need to do more telling the stories of, of our, our, our black and brown folks from a historical standpoint in our armed forces. You know, I had a chance to some years ago to speak with someone I know, you know, Charles Dryden, you know. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. You know, and just uh, just amazing conversation. So, um, you know, we, we need to do a better job of telling y'all's, as, as we say down here, y'all's yeah. story, 
You know, what'd yeah. you what'd you fly in Vietnam? You, it was a copter. I am a, I flew the A six Intruder, which is a two place um, all weather attack aircraft. Not supersonic. It never, you know, five hundred miles an hour was about as fast as we could go. But it had. It's the most. I tell people all the time. It's the most incredible airplane God ever allowed us to create. Uh, it's the best airplane I've ever flown, and um, our mission was flown generally at night and low level, um, prosecuting targets uh, gotcha. of enemy mm-hmm. uh, down on the ground. Now I gotta ask you this: all that stuff we see in Top Gun, because that, that really happened. You know, could we really? Could you do all that stuff that Tom Cruise is doing? <laughs> I couldn't do all that stuff that Tom Cruise is doing, but my son, who is an, also a naval aviator and a Marine, um, he's a fighter weapons and sensor operator, Wizzo. He's retired now, but he actually went to Top Gun or the the, the Marine Corps version of it. And um, so he could do all that stuff. His wow. dad couldn't. His dad's <laughs> just a plain old attack. Pilot. Oh, come on now. And listen, I have but a... I was I was a pretty good attack. Pilot, I, but, uh, well, you're still here. So, I mean, you know, I'm still here. Uh, exactly. Listen, exactly. I have another question. It says, I'd love for him to describe the first time he saw Earth from space. I cried. Wow. Uh, I, I was literally, you know, I we had trained for years to get ready for the first flight. And being a person of African descent, I had diligently studied the geography of Africa because I wanted to be able to look down and pick some of the countries where my my ancestors likely came from. And um, about 15 minutes into the flight, uh, you know, having left the the coast of Florida from Cape Canaveral and and Kennedy Space Center, I looked out the window and I saw this big island coming up and that big island turned out to be the continent of Africa. And uh, and I, I tears came into my eyes when I recognized that all my life for some reason, I had thought I would see borders and boundaries yeah. because that's all we ever talk about is differences among people and borders and boundaries. There were none. It was just one beautiful continent. Um, and I couldn't tell one country from the other. So I, wow. I, I welled up realizing that, you know, I need to go back home and tell people we're all one one planet uh, on one ocean and we're all interdependent on each other. And we've got to get over this these artificial divisions that we stick in our way. And it's no 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 time more so important than today. And and through the Scholarship Foundation, we hope we can help kids to have those kinds of experiences and be able to do the same thing. Well said and a good way to end this conversation. Wow, distinguished astronaut, former NASA Administrator, retired Marine Major General Charles F. Bowden Jr. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed this conversation. We'll have a link to all the scholarship information from our website to that one. Thank you so much, Rose, and give my best to everybody down there in Hotlanta. I will. All right, now. All right. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, as you all love to do. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1. WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.